And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you for your word. And we remember that your word is inerrant. Your word is inspired. Your word is all-sufficient. And your work is accomplished through the preaching of your word. We remember that faith comes from hearing. And so as we now hear your word, O Lord, we pray that you would work in us, conform us to the image of Christ, help us to receive your word with a submissive spirit, with a joyful spirit, with a glad spirit, with a spirit that rejoices in all circumstances, regardless of how comfortable or uncomfortable we might be. We pray, O Lord, that your word would work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray the same for our kids. We pray, O Lord, that you would save our kids. Help us to disciple them well. Help us to share the gospel with them regularly. Help us to have those difficult conversations about the importance of obedience and the gospel and all those difficult things. We pray for our kids, O Lord, that you would save them in your time and that you would accomplish your work in us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 16. We'll be in John chapter 16 today looking at verses 1 to 4. Uh, we're getting into the rich, rich part of John's uh, gospel. Uh, I'm really looking forward to John chapter 17, so maybe we'll go a little bit quicker through chapter 16, uh, but chapter 17 is amazing. Um, there's so much theology in chapter 17. I'm, I'm a little bit anxious to get there. Maybe you are too, if you're familiar with chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Uh, but we'll be starting chapter 16 today and looking at verses 1 to 4. And the reason I love teaching theology like we find in John chapter 17 is because there are so many churches that don't, and there are so many Christians who just don't know their theology. It's been said that the American church is a mile wide and an inch deep, which is to say that the church in our country tends to produce a lot of people who go to church and who claim to be Christian, and yet their understanding of God, their understanding of Scripture, their understanding of just theology in general, tends to be extremely shallow. Uh, it's difficult, if not impossible, to argue against that when you consider the polls and the studies that have been conducted over the past 10 to 20 years, which have revealed just a, a, a sad dismal, complete lack of understanding that the average churchgoer, the average person who claims to be a Christian in our country has. And the unfortunate reality is that while we have been called out of darkness into light, sent back into the darkness to be a light for Christ, we're called to evangelize. The fact is that this shallowness that American Christians have affects our evangelism. It has to. If we are sharing the gospel, if we are evangelizing faithfully, and yet have a very poor grasp of Scripture or theology, it seems unavoidable that 
this lack of understanding will certainly affect our evangelism. Uh, If you're familiar with Ray Comfort, I call him Ray Discomfort because he likes to make people uncomfortable, but he's a very well-known and very biblically literate evangelist who wrote a book called God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life, The Myth of the Modern Message. The cover of this book features a picture of Stephen being stoned to death by the Jews, which we find in the book of Acts. Uh, Yes, God did have a wonderful plan for Stephen's life. But the thesis of this book is really a refutation of the evangelistic methodology that seems to have gained quite a bit of popularity. I'm not exactly sure when. It was either in my parents' generation, the the boomer generation, or it was in the generation that preceded them. I'm not sure, but uh, in in one of these generations, it became very popular to evangelize by a Christian going up to a non-Christian and saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, the issue here isn't that that is untrue. The issue is that the natural man, the unregenerate man, the man who is unsaved, when when he hears this, he cannot possibly understand what it means or what it would entail. That is to say that whether intentionally or not, deliberately or not, it misrepresents the truth of the Christian journey by ignoring the difficulties that the Christian will inevitably face in this life if He is being faithful to Christ, which by the world's standards isn't wonderful at all. Only the person who has been granted understanding by the work of the Holy Spirit can truly say, yes, it would be absolutely wonderful if God would free me from my idolatry. Or, you know what? I really need to be painfully disciplined. I really need to be painfully broken away from the sins that I have spent my entire life enjoying and practicing daily. Only the person who has spiritual illumination given by the Holy Spirit can say, I'm willing to lose everything in my life to gain Christ. And that's what the Gospel is. The Gospel is not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. The unregenerate man cannot understand that. From the world's perspective, all these things, losing everything to gain Christ, being persecuted, those things are not wonderful from the unregenerate's worldview, from his perspective. They're anything but wonderful. And thus, while I understand that many have been saved through this strategy, I would add that they were not saved because of this strategy, but that they were saved in spite of this strategy. Because if we're being honest, we have no choice but to concede that this is a deceptive, if not forthrightly dishonest and thus sinful, evangelistic methodology. Jesus spoke often of the cost of following Him. When He approached somebody and invited them to follow Him, It wasn't, hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It was, hey, there's a cost if you want to follow me. It was necessarily implied, for example, in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you 
and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Listen, from the, from the natural man, from the unregenerate man's perspective, all those things are not wonderful. But from the Christian's perspective, they are. Jesus says you're blessed if you endure these things. In another instance, uh, during a time in which many people were following Him and yet were by and large unbelieving, Jesus turned to them and said, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. That's from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. Now there, right there, there is a biblical example of evangelism. The idea of going up to someone and, and using this evangelistic methodology, saying something like, you know, if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. If, if you'll believe the gospel, you'll save your life, but you may lose everything in this life as a result of it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? There's biblical evangelism. Now that might sound humorous. You might think, that's, that's crazy that you'd go up to somebody and be so forthright. It might sound harsh, I mean, depending on your perspective. But it's a whole lot more honest. And it's a whole lot more forthcoming than saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life to somebody who can't possibly understand what that means. And who actually has the opposite idea of what wonderful is. In all these verses where Jesus is talking about the cost, the cost and the consequences of following Him, Jesus underscores the reality that it is there. That it is part of following Him. It might cost you. In fact, it might cost you everything in this life. It might cost you your life, period. And for many countless saints from throughout the previous two millennia, it has. It has cost them everything. It has cost them their life. Now, is that wonderful? As Christians, we would say yes. It's not wonderful according to the unregenerate mind. Only the Christian understands that gaining Christ makes losing everything else a bargain. It's a bargain because you're going to lose everything in this life anyway. Right? We all know that. We're going to lose everything that we own. But if you have Christ, and if He is your treasure, you will not lose your treasure when you die. You have a treasure that can never be lost. Now as we continue our study of John's Gospel, entering into the 16th chapter today, Jesus has already warned the disciples. He's already kind of given them a foretaste of, of what's to come, which was similar to all these other passages, talking about the cost of following Jesus, the consequences of following Jesus. He warned them that the world would hate them. Not that they would be ambivalent toward them. Not that the world would be happy to tolerate them. Not that the world would like them. But that the world would hate them. Because the world hates Christ and doesn't know God. Nevertheless, the church had a mission that we saw at the end of chapter 15. A mission to fulfill in the age which was to come. The age which started on Pentecost. And that was that mission was to bear witness to Christ. 
the Holy Spirit and the church would serve as two witnesses to Christ in this age until Christ's return. Now in the passage that we come to today, Jesus will return to this theme of the cost and the consequence of following Christ. And the point of this passage is that there is a cost, sometimes a very high cost. There's a, there's a consequence to following Him, but there's a greater cost to not following Him. Therefore, we would be wise to count the cost because when a person truly does count the cost, what they find is that Christ is worth it. So let's start with John chapter 16. We'll read the whole passage, verses 1-4. to Jesus continues saying to His disciples, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that He is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or Me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. So Jesus begins this next section by explaining why. That's really the question that he's answering. Why he has given all this information that we've seen over the course of the past couple chapters to the disciples. Why he's warned them of the animosity that would be extended toward them by the world. And why he told them that their mission was to to serve as his co-witnesses on the earth with the Holy Spirit. In the first verse here, Jesus says these things, referring to everything that he said up to this point in this section. These things I have spoken to you so that you, plural, may be kept from stumbling. Now the Greek word for stumbling, uh, we, we've talked about this in a previous passage, but that, that word is scandalizo. C- can you guess what word comes from scandalizo? Scandal, right. It, it can imply the enticement to sin. That's what a scandal is, right? When somebody sins and it's like, ooh, big deal, scandalous. But it can also mean to cause to fall away. It, it can be a reference to apostasy. It, it's the same word that Paul used twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, when he wrote this. He said, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, I think what he means there is for them to defy their conscience and thereby sin. Uh, But it's not necessarily a clear reference to apostasy, although it it could be there. But it's also the same word that Jesus used back in chapter 6, verse 61, when he's been teaching on the doctrine that everybody hates and people are getting mad. What, What doctrine would that be? Election predestination, and the people were so mad that he's been talking about this, uh, that Jesus turns to them and he says to them in chapter 6, verse 61, does this cause you to stumble? Then only five verses later, we see that it did. Five verses later, we read, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So what we have to understand is that the first reason that Jesus gave all this information to the disciples was to prevent them either from sinning or from apostasy. But that extends beyond just 
the disciples. It's for our benefit as well. Jesus knew that it is human nature, and we all know it, that it's human nature to love the applause and the accolades of men. He knew that that's human nature. He knew that the church wants to be liked by the world around us. He knew very well that it doesn't feel good to be hated. It doesn't feel good to be disliked. And he knew that because we don't like to be hated, because we don't like to even be slightly disliked, there's a temptation to sin. And that sin is conforming to the world rather than to Christ. There would be temptation to compromise. There would be temptation to become apostates. Yes, it's entirely true that a true Christian, somebody who is truly saved, is always saved. They will not lose their salvation. They cannot lose their salvation. Jesus clearly taught this in in so many places throughout John's Gospel, but maybe most clearly in John chapter 10 when He said this of the security of His people. He said, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In other words, If you are truly in Christ, you won't fall away. In fact, you can't fall away because nobody can take his sheep from his hand and nobody can take them from the Father's hand. The security of the true believer's salvation is taught everywhere in Scripture from beginning to end. Nevertheless, we should also remember that Jesus taught about the reality of apostasy. He taught about the reality of people falling away from the faith as a result of persecution in the parable of the seed sower. In this parable, some of the seed was scattered on rocky soil. And when the disciples are confused about what all the seeds mean and what all the parable means, they go to Jesus and they ask Him to explain. And He explains in verses 16-17 to what the rocky soil is. The seed sown on, on rocky soil represents. He says, These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary, Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately they fall away. Where does that persecution come from? The world. Why? As a result of the Word. As a result of their faith in Christ. And by the way, there's that same Greek word again at the end. This time clearly referring to the reality of apostasy. He says immediately they fall away. Immediately they scandalizo. And of course, this is no contradiction to say that there's such thing as apostasy and yet the person who's truly saved will persevere. There's no contradiction there. Scripture is clear that if someone walks away from the faith, it's because they were never truly of the faith to begin with. In the parable of the seed sower, they had no root they had no root. Their, their, their faith was shallow. It was superficial. They, they received it with joy. They were probably given a very shallow, superficial, evangelistic line. But they fell away because they had no root. Passages like this serve as a sobering reminder for us 
that there is a cost. And therefore, not to take God's grace for granted, but to daily, daily look to, to daily lean on, and to daily abide in Christ Jesus. This is the danger that we face, friends. If you are in Christ, this is the danger that you face. That the world will hate you. And not only will they hate you, but they will hate you so much that it will possibly tempt you to sin, to compromise, and that it will possibly even tempt you to walk away from the faith. What we must realize, especially in times when it's tough to hold on, is that if we just hold on, victory is already certain. Victory is sure. The mission that was given to the church will be accomplished. A hundred percent. There will be nothing left undone. Everything that God has intended to happen will happen. The fact that the church still exists today, by the way, is proof of this. The fact that the church exists despite fierce, fierce seasons of persecution is testimony to the church's sure victory despite persecution through their perseverance. You see the heart of Christ here, friends? Do you see His heart shining through just in this first verse? He cares so deeply for you. He cares so deeply for you on both a corporate level, He loves His church, but on an individual level too. He loves you if you are His. He has that covenant love for you that we've seen so many times through the Psalms. It's a faithful love. It's an unbreakable love. He loves you with an unfathomable, immeasurable love. He does not want you to stumble. He does not want you to be tempted to sin. He does not want you to desire to fall away. And thus, He has spoken these words to comfort you along this journey. Especially for seasons when you're going through fire and your faith is being tested. And it will be. It will be. So what are we to do whenever we're forewarned about something? About something coming? About something happening? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but this time of year, I'm constantly, daily, checking my phone to see what kind of weather is coming. Uh, And there are a few reasons for this. First of all, I'm always looking for uh, days that are forecast to be sunny. Uh, but I also want to know how many more days of rain do I have to endure and exactly how cold and how rainy is it going to be because I want to prepare myself accordingly. That's what we should do when we're forewarned about something. We prepare accordingly. So now take that principle and apply it to what Christ is saying. How do you prepare for your faith to be tested by the world hating you? Maybe persecuting you unto death. You expect it. That's the first thing you do when, you, when you're preparing, is you expect it. Which helps to kind of offset the shock when it comes, right? But you should also spend considerable, considerable time 
doing what you can to partake of the means of grace, of sanctifying grace that God has ordained. In other words, He's given us certain things that will strengthen our faith, that will help us put roots down so that our roots are deep. Things like going to church. Things like praying. Things like studying the Bible. Things like reading books on on Christian living. All, All these things. You spend time doing things that God has ordained to grow our roots deeper. Are you putting down deep roots? Because if you're not, how can you be sure? If you're not putting down deep roots, how can you be sure that your faith will endure if persecution comes, if and when persecution comes? How will you be sure that you're not a seed that's been planted on stony soil? Why does one plant get scorched by the sun while the other doesn't? Because one has deep roots and the other doesn't. Do you believe that Christ loved you enough to die for you? Do you believe that He loves you now? That He he loves you enough that He cares for how you feel about the circumstances that you face? Don't you think that He loves you enough to give you what you need in order to avoid stumbling or possibly falling away. He does. He does love you enough to give you everything that you need. He's given us this warning in His Word. He's given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to give us understanding of His Word. He does not want you to stumble. He does not want you to fall away. He wants you to know that the road that leads to life is narrow, that it is difficult, that it is dangerous, and possibly even deadly. Jesus now proceeds to to give us two examples of the types of persecution that His people will inevitably encounter. Now, obviously, uh, these are only two types. Obviously, we we don't see every Christian endure these two types of uh, specific uh, persecutions, and thus we can assume that these are just two examples uh, that represent kind of the fuller spectrum of the types of persecutions and afflictions and, and trials that Christians will experience. After all, the Scriptures do say that everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Amen. The first one is excommunication. Excommunication from the synagogue. Jesus says in verse 2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Now I think it's difficult for us, for, for, for us to really put ourselves in their shoes and realize how significant this would have been for a Jew who converted to Christianity in the first century. It, it, I mean, if you told me, uh, hey pastor, you know, that Jewish synagogue on the other side of town, they've decided that they're not going to let you come, uh, come into their doors anymore. My response would be, I've never been in their doors, so what? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't care. Uh, but for the disciples, and for the Jews who, who converted to Christianity as a result of their witness in the first century, this was immensely significant. There was no so what about it for them. No, this was a very high and a very heavy cost 
in their minds. When a person was made an outcast of the synagogue, that is when they were excommunicated, as we'd say, it was a declaration that a person was severed from fellowship of and worship of God. Now, I don't believe that I think this just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. But when I think of that kind of declaration of being severed from worshiping God, uh, that is absolutely terrifying. If you told me that I could no longer gather with the saints to worship God and to experience corporate fellowship and communion with God as a, as a church family, I'll be honest with you, I, I, think, I think I'd probably rather die, honestly. If you recall, we just got a very, very small taste of that last year, didn't we? When the governor instructed all churches to be closed. We were told two weeks to flatten the curve, and the elders and I decided, okay, that's, that's reasonable. Two weeks isn't a terribly long amount of time. But then two weeks turned into four weeks, and four weeks turned into eight weeks. And even though we were live-streaming a sermon every week, uh, every single one of us, who took part in that realized that that was not the same. That a live stream was absolutely no substitute for going to church and gathering with the saints to worship God. And not worshiping with all of you guys, if I'm being honest again, it sent me into a walloping depression. It was terrible. I, I, I hated it. And I know it did for some of you too. I know that's how some of you felt as well because you reached out to me during that time. And I know that you were feeling the same kind of depression that I was. But now imagine that being permanent. That's what being cast out, excommunicated from the synagogue would have meant for a first century Jew. It meant that you could not worship God the way that God had instructed, which involves corporate gathering. But it meant more than that though. It also represented being cut off from the things that made the synagogue significant. It meant being cut off from the sacrifices that the priest would make on behalf of the assembly. And it meant that you had no access to the reading of Scripture. I mean, keep in mind that this was, you know, what, 1,500 years or so uh, prior to the invention of the printing press. Uh, you couldn't just go to Walmart and, uh, you know, pick up a copy of the Scriptures back then. No, the Scriptures were only found and only read in the synagogue. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, Paul writes of the blessings that the Jews had, writing that it's the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Being excommunicated, being cast out of the synagogue, meant losing all of those rich, incredible blessings, and suddenly being given the status of a tax collector, a sinner. Now, not to sound like an infomercial, but wait, there's more. Not only would the person who would be excommunicated from the synagogue lose all of those blessings that were found in the synagogue, but he would also be cut off from his Jewish friends and from his family members. He would not even be able to work for a Jew who was in good standing with the synagogue. So where was he supposed to find work? From a Gentile? 
Now, the Gentiles hated the Jews too. Uh, that would have made it also impossible for him to start his own business. Uh, who's going to be a patron of his business? The Jews are going to avoid him because he's been made an outcast of the synagogue, and the Gentiles are going to avoid him because he was an Israelite. So, how is he going to survive? How is he going to put food on the table? Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he wouldn't. So, you get the point, I hope. The idea of being cut off from the synagogue would have been absolutely terrifying to a Jew in the first century. Think of how the man who was born blind and who Jesus healed back in chapter 9 must have felt. But let's not lose sight of the fact that while he lost so much in this world, in which we spend so little time, he gained everything in the next, in which we spend eternity. And how ironic is it that a blind man, a man who'd been blind all his life, could see that more clearly than the Pharisees. The second representative example of the type of persecution and affliction that the disciples and the church, by extension, would face is martyrdom. Again, this is unquestionably not experienced by all Christians, not even by most Christians, but I would probably bet that it's way more common than most of us realize. Uh, How many of you are aware of the fact that, numerically speaking, there have been more Christians killed in the last five or ten years than there has ever been within five to ten years in the history of the world? We don't realize it because it's not happening here and our news does nothing to cover what's happening in the Middle East and in Africa and in China and in North Korea to our brothers and sisters who face fierce persecution. Numerically, there has never in the history of the world been more persecution than there is right now. It's so easy for us in the Western world where we never, ever, ever have to face that type of persecution. Now, I should point out, and this might seem a little bit harsh, but bear with me, I should point out that I believe that it is unequivocally stupid and ignorant to say that because nobody is coming for our heads, that is, because Christians here in America and in Canada and Australia aren't being killed, that we're not being persecuted over the past couple years, over I guess it's a year and ten months, we've seen many professing Christians making that claim that because Christians in America and Canada and Australia and wherever aren't being killed, they're not being persecuted. They'll say, oh, your church is being shut down by the government? Well, that's, that's too bad, but that's not persecution. These Christians being killed in Nigeria, they're the ones who are being persecuted. Nobody's trying to kill you, so you're not being persecuted. You should just obey the government. Have you guys seen those arguments? They're being published by some very, very well-known paraministries. Now, I, don't have, I just don't have a nicer term for that line of argumentation than to say that that is the lowest form of ignorance. Because Jesus has made it clear here that martyrdom is only one type of persecution. So really what that argument boils down to is kind of the same thing as saying, well, all human beings breathe, lizards breathe, so people must be lizards. I mean, I should add, by the way, that we should desire to obey the government. We should desire that. God has ordained the government to rule over us, and thus we should be eager to submit to the governing authorities. But 
when the governing authorities instruct us to do what God forbids, or if they forbid what God has explicitly instructed us to do, like gathering in person, we must follow the example of Peter and John, who, upon being told to disobey God, responded, we must obey God rather than men. Has God instructed us to gather? Yes or no? Just a simple question. Has God instructed us to gather? Absolutely He has. And was the government trying to prevent people from gathering, both here and in Canada and now in Australia? Yeah. More so in, in some places than others, of course. But you had the government in Canada building fences around churches so that the members of those churches could not gather, could not obey God. And you had organizations like the Gospel Coalition arguing that that isn't persecution. Oh, I just dropped a name. I'm not afraid to name names. The Gospel Coalition, watch out for those guys. Be very careful with them. They write some good stuff, but they were saying, oh no, the church isn't being persecuted. You should just obey what your government tells you to do. Now, of course, that is persecution. It is ridiculous and unbiblical to, un- to argue to the contrary. Martyrdom is not the only type of persecution that the church would face, but it was certain to be one type. The book of Acts records two instances of this type of persecution, persecution unto death. Stephen, when he was stoned to death, and James, when he was beheaded. What's very interesting to see, however, is that the persecution that Jesus tells us about here, that He warns us about here, the two examples of persecution that He uses to represent the whole spectrum of types of persecution, they're both carried out by outwardly very, very religious people. And Paul was one example of this, wasn't he? He he was outwardly very religious. He was a Pharisee who exemplified this kind of persecution. He actually admits it. He explains in Acts chapter 26 verses 9 to 11 where he says this. He says, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul not only exemplified the Pharisees in his hatred for Christians, for the church, but he persecuted them for the exact reason that Jesus gives here in verse 3 of John chapter 16. He says this, he says, these things they will do, why? Because they have not known the Father or Me. This is the motivation of natural, unregenerate man for the past 2,000 years. That's why they hate the church. It was true in Jesus' life. It was true in the apostles' life. They experienced it. Beyond that, it was experienced throughout the first century, by the first century church, into the second century. They saw many of their own being fed to lions in the Colosseum before crowds of thousands and thousands of screaming, applauding citizens. Can you imagine in that day, after one of those events, going up to somebody and saying, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you all about it. 
But this has also been true throughout the, the last 2,000 years as well. It wasn't just the first and second century churches. It has been this way throughout the past 2,000 years. Many of the Reformers faced intense persecution, and some even faced martyrdom. How many of you have heard of Bloody Mary? There's a thing that we used to do when we were kids, Bloody Mary in front of a mirror or something like that. I don't even know. I never did it. I was too afraid to do it, but, uh, but I know that kids, you know, kids were doing it. But do you know who Bloody Mary was? That was Mary Tudor. She was a, a queen of England, Queen Mary I. She was given the name Bloody Mary because of the vast number of Protestants she was responsible for murdering. Over 300 Protestants burned at the stake for their faith as she attempted to promote Roman Catholicism in England in her time. Now we normally consider Martin Luther to be so brave, right? He was so brave. He, he, he stood against the Roman Catholic Church regardless of the cost. And he was just, you know, the example for us to follow. No, he, he, was, he hated it. He absolutely hated the fact that he had to oppose the Roman Catholic Church. We read stories of him, yeah, refusing to melt under intense pressure, choosing instead to, to stand uh, without compromise on the Word of God, while remaining completely unmoved by the papal decrees that were being issued against him. But he had a heart. And he was just like us. He, he, he didn't like the animosity that he was on the receiving end of. He says this in his exposition of John 16. He asks God, Am I to stand up alone and preach against your people, your kingdom, your priests, and your word? For that, of course, is where your name is. They have your law, your temple, and both the spiritual and the worldly government ordained by you yourself. Who am I to oppose single-handedly all that is God's? I would rather say, listen to this part, he says, I would rather say that they're right, retract my preaching, or at least keep silence. End quote. What we see there is that Luther actually exemplified the sensitivity that we all have when it comes to persecution. It isn't easy. It's daunting. It is intimidating. It has the potential to cause us to stumble in our faith or for the person who has only a very shallow, superficial, rootless faith to fall away. Let's be clear about this. The only reason that we don't fall away is because of Christ and the grasp that He has on us. It isn't easy to be a Christian. By the world's standards, it is not wonderful. But it is wonderful to us because we know that we are secure in Christ's hand. Martin Luther would rather have agreed, he says, with the Pope and, and just been silent. But Christ who alone is Lord of the conscience, would not allow him to just remain silent. In the same way, the saints will all persevere, but only because the grace of God perseveres in preserving us, in holding us fast, even in times of persecution. But we should see that we are to expect that many of our persecutors will claim to be God's people. And I'd argue that some of the fiercest opposition that the true church in North America 
and in Australia has faced in the past two years has come from liberal paraministry organizations that were translating government propaganda into Christianese, trying to convince Christians to disobey God by not gathering. We must remain aware of the reality that throughout this age, the tares will be sown among the wheat. There will be people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be part of the true church, who may speak the language and wear all the ecclesiastical garb, and yet their hearts are nevertheless far, far away from Christ. This is why we must always test the spirits. Against what? What what do we test the spirits against? What do we measure them by? The Word. The Scriptures. That's the standard. If somebody is telling you to do something that Scripture forbids, or if they are encouraging you not to do what Scripture explicitly instructs, we have to ask, why are they expecting a different standard than what God's Word lays out? Where are they getting this standard? Because we must... We must. It's not optional. We must obey God rather than men. So what are we to do when persecution comes? Whether it's martyrdom or excommunication or frankly anything that would qualify as a type of persecution. First of all, remember that Jesus warned us about this. This is why He said it. he's, He's explicit about this. Remember that Christ warned us about this. So there's a sense in which we must expect it. We must brace ourselves for it and be prepared to endure it. But secondly, grow deeper in the faith. Keep growing deeper in the faith. There will never be a point that you'll reach in the Christian journey on this side of glory where you can say, well, that's it. I've learned everything there is to know about the Christian faith and I can just coast from here. That's not going to happen. We've always got room to grow. So the second thing is, spend time growing deeper in the faith. Study the Word. Read books. Listen to sermons. These are all the means of grace, sanctifying grace, that God has ordained for our growth. It's what the Christian church has been doing for 2,000 years now. Learn those truths that the church has clung to for 2,000 years. Third, as you're doing this, as you're studying the Word, as you're putting down deep roots, learn to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Regardless of whatever circumstances you might be facing, including persecution. By the way, when Paul said that, when he wrote that to the Philippians, do you know where he was? He was chained up to a Roman guard in a a house. He was a prisoner. And yet he's full of joy. He's rejoicing. And he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He doesn't mean I can throw a football or I can outrun somebody. He means I can endure whatever circumstances I'm surrounded by. There is nothing that can stop me from growing in Christ's likeness because God is with me and working through me. Let's go back to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven 
is great. Let me put it this way. If you're being persecuted in any sense, whether it's martyrdom or excommunication from a godless organization, if you're being persecuted, it can be an indication of something. If you're in line with the doctrine that the church has held to throughout the last 2,000 years and you're still being persecuted for what you believe, your facing persecution very likely means that you are being faithful. Can you rejoice in that? Absolutely. Because if you're being faithful, it's not because of you. It's God working through you and conforming you to Christ's likeness. You're facing persecution means that you're looking more like Christ than the world's comfortable with. He knew that people like you would be persecuted. And He specifically gave people like you two very clear warnings in the Scripture. First, in verse 1, He says, "...these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling." And then in verse 4, "...but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them." In other words, we are to know and expect these things. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way wonderfully. He puts it this way. He says, quote, To be hated by a world that does not know either the Father or Christ is a mark of being identified with both of them. End quote. When Peter and John were flogged for being faithful to the Lord, they rejoiced. Because they remembered what Jesus had warned them about. We read in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. The implication here is that it is an honor to suffer for Christ's name. Listen to what Peter wrote. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he's writing to a church that was being fiercely, intensely persecuted, being fed to lions. And here he instructs them saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And, and listen to what he says next. And t- take this part to heart. He says in verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Does suffering persecution for the sake of Christ give you a reason to rejoice? Yes. Yes, it does. Rejoice that you are identified with Christ. Rejoice that you are considered worthy to partake in His sufferings. And rejoice that He is even using the hatred and the persecution and the affliction that you face in this life to strengthen your faith. Hold on. Hold on to Christ. He has guaranteed that the mission will be accomplished. He has guaranteed a reward and glory that we can't even imagine. While there is a cost to following Christ, there is a greater cost for not 
following Him. It might cost you everything in this world, but those who have steadfastly refused to believe on Him stand on sinking sand. And one day, one day they will be cast into hell, permanently cut off from God's grace. Not by a godless organization like the synagogue, but by God Himself. Hell is not a place where people party because God isn't in charge. No, it's a place where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth because God is in charge there. But that doesn't need to be your future. Believe on Christ. Stand on Christ. Abide in Christ. And receive the forgiveness of sins. Believe on Him and God will literally cover you in Christ's own perfect righteousness. For those who believe in Him savingly, there is an eternity of joy that awaits us. Just ahead. It's just ahead. Persecution on this side of glory only works up our appetite for heaven. It makes us hungry for it. And it will never. Heaven will never. The reward that we have in heaven will never ever disappoint. We would be wise, therefore, to count the cost of following Christ, of believing in Christ, and to see that following Christ is always worth it. Whatever persecution we may face, and however high the cost on this side of glory may be, it's worth it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the warnings that we receive in Your Word. Thank You not only for the warnings, but for the Holy Spirit giving us understanding. We pray, O Lord, that You would give us, by Your grace, deep, deep roots in the faith in order that when difficult times come, when persecution comes, whether that be being hated by the world, getting a dirty look, being martyred, in order that when those times come, we would not fall away. We would not stumble. Lord, we confess to You that in our own strength, we would stumble. We would not only fall to the temptation to sin, but we would fall away from Christ altogether if it were up to us. And so we thank You for Your grace. We lean on Your grace. We need Your grace, and we confess that to You. We need it daily. So strengthen us, O Lord. Strengthen us, encourage us, grow us in the likeness of Christ in order that when affliction, when tribulation when being scorned for the sake of Christ comes, we may be faithful to what You have called us to do and to be. All for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.